This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. My name is Chris Dearborn. I'm an associate clinical professor here at Suffolk Law, specializing in criminal law and criminal defense. First, I think probably makes sense to do a little overview of, of the new law and what led up to the creation of that law, and then talk a little bit about uh, what is good and, in my opinion, troubling about the law. So this was a bill that was proposed to replicate or come close to replicating three strikes laws that exist in other jurisdictions. What that means generally is when an offender gets to a certain point in time, given their prior criminal history, if they have two prior oversimplified serious felony convictions, uh, at least one of which resulted in a state prison sentence of three years or more, if they are charged with a third such offense that fits into a category, I think there are roughly 40 crimes covered by the law, then there is no possibility of parole following a third offense, either through uh, after trial with a conviction or uh, a plea, unless, of course, some sort of plea reduction is negotiated to reduce the third crime. Procedural history of this uh, issue is, is interesting. Like a lot of criminal bills that come about, uh, it was inspired, I don't know if that's a, an appropriate word or not, but by one or more tragic individual incidents which led people to lobby hard for the imposition of this law. The Senate and State House of Representatives agreed after a joint committee to propose a bill that had such a three strikes provision in it. Initially, Governor Patrick tried to send that back to both bodies saying, I'm with you on almost everything except for I would like to have some sort of judicial discretion built in for extraordinary circumstances. In other words, some sort of mechanism for a judge to deviate from the imposition of no uh, opportunity for parole with a third conviction. What this bill ends up doing, now law ends up doing, is creates approximately another 20 life felonies in Massachusetts. So after Governor Patrick requested that, that the legislative bodies reconsider one aspect of their proposal, they sent it back to him and said, no, we're not going to make the change it requested. And the request, the change that Governor Patrick requested was just to have some discretion built in, very small set of circumstances. The complaints have not outraged by the public and the legislative bodies around Governor Patrick's counterproposal was that it gutted the bill. That's the first piece that I sort of take issue with. His counterproposal didn't gut the bill. All it did was built in a little discretion in a very small group of cases. So I thought that was overstated both by legislative members and the media that, that the change that he was advocating for would gut the bill. So then Governor Patrick was faced with a choice. Should he have approved the bill and passed it into law or vetoed it and depending on the timing of that veto, which was very late in the legislative session, that could have killed it for now and it would have had to wait until the next legislative session to come back. Governor Patrick decided, despite his concerns, to approve the bill with a, uh, he claims, a, a promise from members of the legislative bodies to take another look at this soon, if not during the next legislative session. I have to, despite my concerns about his approving the law in toto, I have to applaud Governor Patrick for a lot of what he did with this process. He was instrumental in having 
other portions of this bill now law affect, I think, um, a realistic impression of, of what is just. For example, the, the law reduces the distance for school zone charges and cuts into drug offense, non-violent offense, mandatory minimums. And I applaud that because I think that is good policy and good law and based on trying to provide opportunities for nonviolent drug offenders. The quid pro quo, unfortunately, was I think that he felt compelled to approve the rest of the law, including the three strikes provision. What was floating around in the media during this process was not only that such a change would gut the, the intention of the law, which I disagree with, but also that only a very small group of people, the numbers thrown out there were six or seven a year, would be actually impacted by this bill. I'm not sure where that data came from, but I have serious concerns about the viability of those numbers. Without having done a very detailed historical study, I don't, I don't know how they could predict the number of people who would be impacted by this. And I can tell you anecdotally and experientially, I believe there will be more people affected by this three strikes bill. In other words, more people who are incarcerated without the option of, of parole, statistically speaking, about half of them for life. The other part that I think is troubling is that I don't know if there was ever any data analysis of similarly situated people in the past. In other words, if somebody had taken a good look at people who would have fit this profile in the past, I think they would find that those individuals are getting nothing even close to a free pass. In other words, the sentences that without the three strikes bill that those individuals would be receiving would still be extraordinarily harsh and admittedly at times appropriately harsh. So the number of people who would recidivate after, under the, the previous statutes, would recidivate and be a, a potential danger to the community, I think is a very small number. One of the other policy arguments that was thrown out there about this proposal was that it would serve as a deterrent. By definition, of course, it would be a specific deterrent, meaning the individual who is incarcerated would not be in a situation in society at large where they could commit another violent offense. But to think of this bill as, as serving a general deterrent purpose completely misses the point of the profile of most of the people who are in this situation. In other words, most people who are inclined to uh, commit these kind of crimes have serious background issues, have mental health problems, and a variety of other unusual or unique circumstances which all would serve as mitigating factors in the analysis, uh, which is why it'd be nice to have discretion. To claim that those individuals would not commit predicate offense or a crime that would qualify under three strikes because of their awareness that they might be facing life without parole belies all sociological and psychological research. Those crimes are committed out of desperation often. They're committed by people who have serious mental illnesses and they are done in the heat of the moment. It's somewhat analogous to the general deterrence argument that is thrown out there for the death penalty. The exact same analysis I think is appropriate. The biggest concern I have with this current law is that there are some people who are situated where it isn't appropriate. It's not just for them to receive either life without parole or a significantly long state prison sentence without parole because it doesn't allow for accounting for any unique or individual circumstances or compelling mitigating factors. And the hallmark of our justice system is to allow 
discretion and judicial discretion and imposing an appropriate sentence for even repeat offenders based on the circumstances of the case. So it's, it wouldn't necessarily just be about somebody's personal characteristics, whether they had had a horrible upbringing and a horrible set of circumstances or whether they were severely mentally ill. It would also be about the facts of the underlying and third offense. Some take an, an armed robbery as an example. Uh, it's one of the predicate offenses. Some armed robberies are heinous in nature and deserve the most serious penalty structure possible. And in fact, I believe that most judges would punish that accordingly after trial or as part of a plea. But some of the factual constellations of uh, a charged offense are not as serious or not nearly as serious as the most serious scenario you can envision. And this law doesn't allow for accounting for personal characteristics that may be mitigating as well as the nature and facts around an individual offense. So my hope moving forward is that Governor Patrick's claim promise from legislators to take another look at this aspect in the near future comes to fruition. I have my doubts about that. I think it was so strongly supported by both bodies that I don't know if they'll take a second look, but I hope they do because our justice system has to be about having some judicial discretion built in, and it has to be about looking at each individual criminal and the criminal conduct and imposing an appropriate penalty structure for that unique set of circumstances. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.